it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. How are you guys doing? I hope you're all faring well during these dark times. Don't forget to connect with other humans. I've found, especially through this podcast, that it really helps. Um, If you like what you hear today, please leave a rating write a review on iTunes so I can keep bringing you content and spread the word to your literary friends to subscribe and follow the Situation in the Story podcast. If you're a writer or you know a writer that's interested in being interviewed for the show, please email me at thesituationinthestory at gmail.com. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. In my 17th episode, I sat down with the brilliant and thoughtful Denver-based poet, Andrea Rexilius. Andrea is the author of Sister Urn, New Organism, Essays, Half of What They Carried Flew Away, and To Be Human is to Be a Conversation, as well as the chapbook Seance and To Be Human. Her creative and critical writing is featured in the following anthologies. Anne Carson, Ecstatic Liar. The Volta Book of Poets, 60 Morning Talks, Serial Interviews with Contemporary Authors, and Letter Machine Book of Interviews. She's core faculty in poetry and program coordinator for the Mile High MFA, Creative Writing at Regis University. She also teaches in the Poetry Collective at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver, Colorado. Enjoy. Why do you write? Why do I write? Um, well, I think of writing as a form of thinking, I suppose. (laughs) So it's a way for me to know what is kind of going on in my interior existence. And it's a way to sort of, you know, map that out or articulate it through some kind of form, um, through language in particular, Although I, I guess I would say that I think of all art forms as modes of thinking. So I also make um, embroideries or collage. Um, I do a lot of different kinds of art forms. So the writing um, is my primary mode of making or thinking. Um, I guess because I'm interested in like the way that you enter into a space of language and um, something transforms in that space. So 
it's a way not to just sort of do a one-to-one maybe correlation of what's going on inside my mind, but a way to sort of investigate something or step into a space of the unknown where I'm able to um, let language kind of guide me toward clarity or, um, and maybe articulation is a word that I would think of as kind of parallel to clarity. So it's a way of like giving visibility to things that maybe um, are, are less visible to me in my life. So do you mean like uh, emotions? Yeah, emotions, but also just how I'm sort of gathering the threads of the various things that I'm thinking or experiencing or reading or watching and then seeing what those are kind of manifesting in terms of like what they articulate in conversation with one another. Yeah, I love that. Is it true, too, that you make your own dresses? Am I making that up? Everybody thinks thinks I make my own dresses, but here's the thing. I, um, the way that my sort of qualities of making work um, are fairly, like, I prefer imprecision. Something like dressmaking um, requires precision. I just have such trouble following a pattern for some Mm. reason, like a pre-made pattern. I start, I try, I have some sewing books and I'm like, yes, it would be amazing. I would be so magical if I could make my own beautiful dresses. I could like design them a little bit, (laughs) interested in that kind of thing. But when when it actually comes down to like looking in a pattern book, my eyes just glaze over. (laughs) I get so bored. It's like I'm doing math all of a sudden. I, uh, I don't know what it is, but I have a kind of aversion to like that kind of a set of instruction or like even rulers measuring things. I'm just like, it is not for me. I want to just sort of eyeball things, like follow my intuition, um, make it up as I go. Making it up as you go. I've tried with dressmaking. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't turn out so great. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that making it up as you go is that there's still a way of being precise with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a different kind of precision that, and I'm just more interested in that kind of precision, but it's sort of maybe related to like how I think about poetry and um, traditional forms versus sort of contemporary experimental poetry that functions more from a state of free verse or um, thinking about forms that are more open-ended. But um, I mean, I'm always thinking about how content relates to form or how you find form within the thinking or the threads of the thinking. And that's the part that's most interesting to me, the kind of structural architectural aspect of it. And so, yeah, I've tried in dressmaking to like, I'm like, I'll just, I basically sort of freestyle figuring out how to make my own patterns rather than just following the ready-made patterns. Yeah. I, I need to know how the, the form or like how the thing is put together from my own experience of actually doing it versus like having a template that somebody else gives to me. And then I build off that template in terms of design or shape or color. Yeah. I like to create the template. Yeah. That's why you're a poet. <laughs> exactly. 
So without, at the risk of this sounding like a kind of templatey thing, what, how, what, what is poetry in your opinion? How, like, how would you describe it or define it or maybe its role? I think it's so many things, but I suppose I think of it, I always use the metaphor of the hem, you know, again, to, I guess to go back to sewing metaphors and to, yeah. you know, um, pattern making. But part of what I think about the hem or um, stitching a hem is that we're moving between like the back of um, a piece of cloth or a piece of paper if we translate it into poetry and then pulling something through to the front and doing that gesture over and over again. So it's this idea of how you sort of enter this realm of um, silence or the ineffable, the, you know, the invisible, and you access that space, maybe the space of the subconscious or the, this sort of space that writing that you can actually mark down surrounds, which is that thing that can't be articulated within within even the act of articulating things. I'm really interested in that. So um, I think of writing as a way to enter into that space of the kind of unarticulated, pulling it through into something that gives it some sort of visibility, even if it's visible in its own absence. It's visible through you know, image or sound, which sound-driven poetry often, you know, really gives rise to kind of emotional resonances, which um, you feel first before you rationally understand them. Yeah. So um, I like, I don't know if that answers the questions, but those are, oh, that's, yeah. the, that's the aspect of poetry that I'm interested in. The part of it that accesses something that is ineffable or unnameable or not able to be directly articulated. And then uh, what poetry does is, is it surrounds that element with nuances of language that allow the sort of emotive part of that under undercloth or un, um, backstitch yeah. to be made visible. That's crazy beautiful. Do you think that's specific to poetry or is that something you can do with essay or memoir or fiction? I think you can do it in probably any form of writing, but in particular, I think it's writing that's thinking about gap or fragment, um, wound, those kind of those. <laughs> kind of issues where um, there's a kind of damage that's taking place uh, in, or there's an accounting for damage that takes place in setting something to language, marking it as text or writing, you know, so back to the stitch metaphor, it's like the way that um, when you pull the thread through with a needle, you um, pierce, you're piercing something, you're creating an opening um, and a space. But I think that's a little bit abstract. <laughs> so uh, in terms of like how that how that manifests in writing itself, it's more the ways in which sentences or lines might end up fragmented, or you might leap from one kind of meaning to the next, how you combine different kinds of meaning making, like narrative or logical meaning making with more metaphorical and associative. So I think that happens in all kinds of writing, that collision of 
of various strands of meaning. And those things sort of, their collisions and their juxtapositions are what exposes those gaps or fragments and leaps and, and sort of give articulation to the thing that's not uh, able to be articulated. That's such a paradox, but that's well, po- that is poetry, though. I- that is poetry. Yeah, I was when you first asked that asked that question, I was like, I should be a smart teacher and be like, what are the quotes that I usually <laughs> no, uh, no. with with name? But now I know what they are. It's the um, Keats, you know, negative capability, dwelling in uncertainty without any irritable reaching after facts. Mm. You know, so it is about, poetry is about this space, entering a space of the multiplicitous and the contradictory and being able to be comfortable in those contradictions it's counterintuitive for me well maybe not maybe it's intuitive for me but i've forced myself into a very structured rigid type of thinking or writing or something yeah i mean i think that's a common thing that happens where like we try to be too neat with what Mm -hmm. we're writing or thinking and we sort of filter out the parts of it that are contradictory or messy or that seem like they're leading us astray when actually maybe those sometimes those things might be the most fruitful to look at so how do you know when to listen or what to listen to especially if we're talking about the unknowable and the unarticulatable <laughs> like how do you access that or is that specifically the process of just writing i think it's the process of writing but i'd say you know part of it is like letting go of your own sort of sense of control of the language and following what the language is doing. So in poetry, you know, I talked about like thinking about architecture form. So one of the things that I do is as I'm starting a project, I kind of look for the language that gives me information about the structure or the architecture of the piece. It's typically a word that can be either, that can be both a noun and a verb. So it's like a word that contains that kind of multiplicity or contradiction too. And then those words, I kind of, they really sort of open up in interesting ways in terms of their structure and also like their metaphorical gestures. For instance, hem was one of those words for me. That was maybe the first time that I kind of really had um, a clear, a word that really kind of opened my writing in that way. Mm, I love it. Okay, so your most recently published collection, Sister Ern is about your sister who passed away. And I remember walking around in a sheer with you a couple of years ago and you talked about her a bit. Could you kind of tell us about her? So I I met her when we were both 10 years old. She's Hungarian. She was born in Budapest. She moved to the United States with her mother when she was 10 years old. Her mom packed up a couple suitcases in the middle of the night and left her husband and family and flew to the to, to Chicago specifically, um, where her brother Tomas was already living. Somehow, my stepmother Agnes met my uncle and was introduced to my father, and uh, they very quickly got married. They actually got married while I was out of town. I was in California visiting my mom, who had moved there when I was seven years old. I lived full-time with my dad in Chicago, or outside of Chicago, and I would see my mom for a month or two every summer in California. This summer, I was, um, I'm saying 10. My sister's actually a year younger than me. 
she's she was 10 and I was actually 11 Mm. so I was 11 that summer and um, I flew back to Chicago and uh, met my stepmother in the the kitchen was upset because I wasn't really given any warning to this extreme change in my life I realize I'm sort of talking more about myself first but um, (laughs) I'll say more things about my sister after this but I think it's important to know how she became my sister because it's not a traditional you know story of of sistership or sisterhood yeah So yeah, my dad and Agnes told me that they had gotten married and um, I was upset and I ran upstairs to my room and flung open the door and saw a little girl about the same age as me sitting in my room playing with my toys, wearing my clothes. It had been clear she had been sleeping in my bed. My my dad, it's, I know it's funny and it's also just like, what the fuck? My dad had followed me up the stairs. So behind me, I heard him say, Uh, this is your sister Andrea and of course that she had the same name as me was the final sort of (laughs) I don't know like psychic blow or whatever and then after that we we kind of became like Siamese twins we slept in the same bed we showered together we sat she was basically sort of merged with me became my shadow just for a while until she was able to speak and understand English Mm. but when she first she they had really just um, gotten to the United States maybe a couple weeks um, before I met them yeah maybe more accurately a couple months my sister when she was young once she after she kind of separated from me and went into her own grade in school and made her own friendships she was she's very like extroverted she um became a cheerleader in high school she loved to dance she that's partially why she became a cheerleader she got super into rave culture. We grew up in the 90s. We yeah. went to high school in the 90s. She got super into rave culture and loved to dance um, at the raves. She was very good at math yeah. and art. The collection was really painful to read and I imagine probably painful to write. So I'm curious about that as someone who's also writing about loss and trauma and whatnot. Um How long did it take to write and kind of like, how did that process feel? How did it go? Well, some of it was already written. So the trick of this book is that, you know, the section that's titled after the title of the book, Sister Earn, is really only 22 pages. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of this, the book is this other section called Nests of Mammals, which in some ways, you know, parallels the themes of grief and interconnectivity, sisterhood. It does thread back together with some t- uh, speaking about my my sister and the loss of my sister. I found, I initially set out to write a full manuscript entirely about my sister, and I just couldn't do that. I had to keep it pretty minimal. Mm. And some of the, the poems in that first section were written before she passed away. Just a few were written after. Mm. So it took, it took me a while to even find a way to articulate what I wanted. You know, I was talking earlier about that sort of what, what can't be articulated in writing and how you, how you use writing to access that or how you use language to do that. 
Mm. And this is one of those instances where like extreme grief or trauma or loss or some kind of like wound that has occurred is the thing that you can't directly name or um, mark to the page. So um, at first I had a really hard time just saying anything at all. And um, I was feeling lots of things, but I couldn't translate that into language. Mm. Finally, uh, I, I kind of just let myself say things unartistically, just sort of like put to the page, very raw, kind of rough language um, that needed to still be shaped into a poem. What I did, what I ended up doing with that to shape it was thought about how my sister you know, is bilingual. So uh, I wanted to sort of give, I don't know if give voice is the right word, but just sort of like engage, think about the Hungarian language as, as potentially part of like my formal gesture in the work. So I, I put the very raw emotional text that I wrote um, through Google Translator. I translated it from English into Hungarian and then from Hungarian back into English and the lines or the sentences warped in really interesting ways. Hmm. And so from there, I carved, I just carved it out into a poem when it was able to be a little bit further away from like my emotional state mm-hmm. so that it could become artistic. So that's in particular, I did that in the um, Dear Sister, I Speak in Tongues. That's really the first poem that I wrote after she passed away. So I did that a few times. I, I just sort of took these raw, direct, emotional, non-artistic statements and translated them. And I translated them sometimes multiple times and um, tried to find interesting language or interesting kind of turns of phrase. And then I would build off of those associatively. So it's not like a, the end result isn't just the translation. Like Mm. I, I worked with it a bit. Yeah. You're reading my mind on all my questions because I was going to ask you kind of what went into that. And now that I'm looking at those letters, that makes more sense. (laughs) Um, Because I was like, what is she doing here? So like on the first letter, Mm -hmm. like you wrote the first part, the first section there, and then translated it and translated it back and then kind of finagled with it a little bit. Both of the English sections are translated, so you don't see the original raw mm. language pre-Google Translator. It's all um, it's all messed with. So figuring out when to, to stop filtering it. Like, so what I would do is I would put the raw language through the translator and back, and then I would change the lines, like write toward them more poetically. Maybe I'd stick them back in the translator to see what else happened to it. Mm. And then, um, so in this instance, I like put it through twice, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you talked earlier a little bit about the idea of a hymn. Is that an idea or a theme that you had before this collection or did it come up with this collection? Does it hold a different meaning in this collection? Yeah, that's a good question. So that um, kind of language and that metaphor came up when I was doing my MFA at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I took a lot of interdisciplinary courses and some performance art classes, and I'm not at all able to be an actress. I'm one of those people that like 
if you get me in front of a camera, I just freeze up and turn super robotic. So when I say performance art, it had nothing to do with acting. It had everything to do with like Pina Bausch, weird sort of dance movements and repetition and like yeah. um, just a bizarro kind of Guillermo Gomez Pena style um ritualistic movement based performance where you didn't really have to say anything. Yeah. Um but in that um class, I'd always been thinking about how to write this, you know, story of my sister and I because it's it's an unusual story and it's sort of, you know, that story of our first meeting is such a kind of obvious metaphorical slap in the face, you know, like the 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 kind of metaphor of it is just so in your face <laughs> like, I, I remember when you first told me about that I almost I was like you're fucking with me like, I know it seems like I'm like it, it also seems like such a lie because it's so <laughs> it's just so exact and it kind of like the articulation of it and the wound of it is just right on top of each other so I always thought like Am I supposed to um, write like a sort of lifetime movie script <laughs> of this? Like, what is this story that I have? What am I supposed to do with this? And I always think about that moment too. So you asked me about why I'm a writer. I also think about, you know, that I'm a writer because of that, um, because of what happened in my childhood, not just meeting my sister, but like, you know, I was an only child until I was 11. So um, I was, I'm Gen X. So um, I was a latchkey kid. I spent a lot of time by myself while my dad was at work. So I spent a lot of time in my own imagination. I spent a lot of time reading uh, from when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. Like in the fourth grade, I entered a short story contest. And if you won, you would get to meet Judy Bloom. Um, I did not win. Oh. I've always been too abstract or something. <laughs> so poetry suits me better. I, I, I don't know. So for all of those other reasons, I am a writer as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having a mother who left when I was young when I was seven moved across the country that was really difficult and then um having uh with my sister it was about language in particular and what happened you know we she only spoke Hungarian and I only spoke English for the first six months to a year before she also spoke English so we existed like in this intimate space with each other sharing a bed, sharing our clothes, sharing our toys, sitting next to each other in the desks at school that were right next to each other. Mm -hmm. When we jumped into the, the jump rope, she jumped in with me. She was always right next to me, but we couldn't really speak to each other. We couldn't use language in that way, but we became really, really close um, in that first year of meeting, which is why we call ourselves sisters, even though our parents are no longer together. I didn't live there. I, I moved out when I was 14. Mm. Yeah, so I think thinking about what it means to speak but without using language made me really interested in how language works. Yeah. But the, so back to the performance art. When I was at SAIC in that performance art class, I did all these performances that had to do with um, cloth and thread, and that's how I started thinking about the front stitch and the back stitch and you know what I talked about earlier. And at some point, 
I also was always thinking about how to articulate this stuff about my sister. And at some point I realized that I was naming all of these, this series of performances that I was doing. Um, I was thinking of them as a hem. And at some point I realized, oh, wow, like those performances are actually sort of bodily silent articulations of the story oh. of me and my sister. And it's a hem is Andrea hem or two Andreas being stitched together mm. and also being unstitched. So when I had that epiphany, that's how that language came into my first book, which also um, talks about me and my sister. Mm. So I just brought it back into this one. So when you say unstitched, are you referring to her passing away or something else? I think I, you know, there's many different ways in which we've been unstitched. In part, it's about her passing away. In part, it's about physically unentangling myself with her traumas mm. and sort of figuring out the boundary between where I begin and end and where she begins and ends. Yeah. Because again, you know, part of what happened with us felt like we got sewn together. We were like Siamese twins. Yeah it fluctuated where we were unstitched or at times where it was more like brutally ripping apart. And then when we came back together again in, in various like emotional or psychological or intellectual ways. Mm. Andrea Hem. Andrea and I flocked together. Andrea and I played jump rope and tetherball at recess. Andrea and I got our periods. I showed Andrea how to insert a tampon. I showed Andrea how to take a shower with me instead of with her mother. Andrea and I played by the Fox River, digging up fake clamshells and drowning Barbie dolls. Andrea and I walked down the railroad tracks to the sewage plant and climbed on a hill of shit that felt like muddy jello. Andrea and I played with her mother's Hungarian tarot cards. I bit Andrea on the back of the neck and left behind teeth marks. I dropped Andrea and she hit her head on the radiator and grew a tiny blue egg on the middle of her forehead. Andrea and I rode a yellow bicycle built for two. Andrea was a stunt double. She always flew over the handlebars, flipped in the air, and rolled to a stop. The other Andrea was less stunt-like. She would land underneath the bike, scraped by the sidewalk and the bicycle chain. Andrea left moldy glasses of milk in our bedroom. Andrea listened to Prince and Madonna. Andrea didn't like that her mother had an accent and didn't shave her armpits. The other Andrea stayed in her room reading books. The other Andrea began huffing glue. The other Andrea almost had sex at a seventh grade orgy until Ramon Santiago's mother stormed in. Andrea and Andrea both snuck out of the house when Andrea's father shoved them into the walls. Andrea and Andrea set the kitchen floor on fire. Andrea and Andrea would spray their hands with hairspray and set their hands on fire. The two Andreas scared away all the boys with their twin powers and spooky Hungarian music. Andrea and Andrea practiced witchcraft. One Andrea wrote down the name of the boy she liked, rolled up the paper, tied it with string, and submerged it in a jar of water. Andrea dated a boy who made graffiti art. The other Andrea dated a boy who wore women's clothing. 
Andrea became homecoming queen. Andrea began getting Fs in school. Andrea pierced her ears with a hot needle. Andrea began smoking cigarettes. Andrea cut her hair long on one side, falling over her eyes and short on the other. Andrea was a cheerleader. Andrea was suspended for selling drugs. She gave a boy a pill that made his pee turn blue. He vomited blue bile all over science class. The other Andrea went to raves. Andrea began taking acid and ecstasy. Andrea is bisexual. Andrea was good at math and drawing. The other Andrea preferred English class and performance art. The first Andrea and the second Andrea pulled stockings over their faces so they would look like androgynous muggers. When the first Andrea's father choked the second Andrea, the first Andrea kicked her father in the chest until he let go. Andrea became addicted to heroin. Andrea moved away. The Andreas reunited in high school playing badminton in PE class. This is my sister Andrea, Andrea would say to her friends who would get upset by this duplication of Andrea's. A boy claimed to have made out with one of the Andreas at a party, but he called the wrong Andrea to follow up. One of the Andreas loved a boy until he loved Ayn Rand and she decided not to love him anymore. One Andrea became a stripper because she liked to dance and the money was good. The first Andrea shoved rum balls down the second Andrea's throat to get her drunk. Both Andreas would pee out of the second story window of their room at night. One Andrea jumped off the roof. The other Andrea was too scared and went out the bathroom window. Andrea developed ulcers. Andrea tried to die. Early on, both of the Andreas stayed home sick and watched License to Drive and The Lost Boys. This is how one of the Andreas learned to speak English. How could a billion Chinese people be wrong, Andrea? Both of the Andreas were sexually assaulted. One of them was raped. Andrea enjoys watching Law and Order SVU. So does the other Andrea, Dun Dun. Andrea's mother said blue-eyed people are not to be trusted, even though she has blue eyes herself. Andrea is addicted to prescription drugs and has severe anxiety. Both of the Andreas have brown eyes. The Andreas do not look alike. The Andreas are not related by blood. Both Andreas prefer orange cats because those are the color cats they grew up with. It is rare when the Andreas talk to each other now. The Andreas like to get high together and watch thrillers on TV. They give each other pedicures and do face masks and talk about the past. If you put two Andreas in a room together, they will speak from the shock of static. Neither of the Andreas will cry about being an Andrea. If you cross an Andrea, they will squint their dark brown eyes at you until it feels like you are being punched in the face. Thank you. I noticed something that I didn't notice the first couple times I read it, which was the point of view switch. What's behind that? This piece sort of started as a list. I was actually trying to write before my sister passed away. This piece was written. And before that, I was trying to write um, about our lives in prose form, like in a sort of long kind of creative nonfiction style piece. Mm -hmm. As I was doing that, I found that, um, you know, I preferred the way in which poetry allows you to distill the emotional resonances of a situation versus like expand something through plot and character development and setting. I was having trouble doing that form of expansion. And so before I shifted into just like, uh, I'm clearly, I'm just a poet. I thought, 
uh, I was thinking about my poor memory and how I, I remember, you know, I hardly, I, re- I don't remember details, you know, I don't remember the names of any of my teachers in elementary school or like what the rooms looked like. Yeah. And I wasn't interested in trying to figure that out, but I thought, what are the things that I actually do remember? <laughs> what stands out? Yeah. And so I started making this list of things that felt really poignant about my sister and I and our relationship to one another. And as that started happening, um, I realized uh, it was the Andrea Hem piece where I was entwining us together. I was also um, shifting point of view or obscuring which Andrea was which so that um, as I, you know, revealed things about my sister, I also revealed things about myself. And part of that act of revealing um, and the vulnerability that comes with revealing these deep personal things about somebody is that um, I wanted it to be unclear whether who was who I was and who she was so that we could both sort of reveal and um, protect or hide one another simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Some of the strands in that poem probably seem like they follow a certain trajectory, you know, like you could trace back, okay, we know one Andrea died of a drug overdose so we we might think all of these threads belong to her when actually many of the threads that seem like they're on the drug addict trajectory belonged to me Mm. and so that's another way to sort of see that how our narratives or our, our stories are entwined and how we both survived or I guess she didn't survive but we both coped with uh difficult childhood situations and found paths that could have led to survival or could have led to um, destruction uh-huh. and that it could have gone either way for for us. She could be the survivor and I could be the person that died. Yeah, for sure. Oh, the second part of your book, Nest of Mammals, seems to, like you kind of said earlier, it still takes on some of the themes of like death and loss in a more global way animals celebrities bodies of water women and you kind of hinted at this earlier that they're separate but related so can you talk a little more about about how it connects back to the more personally local death of andrea yeah that that piece was the piece that i had been working on it comes second in the book but it's actually the piece that uh, I started with, not in relation to my sister's death. I was writing that in the fall of 2016. And so part of where um, thinking more on a global scale and thinking like politically in in relation to women's rights or LGBTQ rights and um, global warming or like various kinds of extinction, um, that came in as, you know, the election in 2016 occurred. My sister was still alive. She died in um, May of 2017. So I was still working on the, the nests of mammals section. When my sister passed away, um, I just stopped working on the nests of mammals. I, I can't quite remember, like, if I picked it back up again, if it was finished, you know, what happened. But at some point, I think it, it was interrupted by um, the sister urn poems. And one of those poems called Grief, mm. that's actually a poem that I wrote very early on, like in my early 20s, when I was looking at it again, 
because it thinks about nests. It used to be titled Nests of Mammals. Mm. Actually, that's I stole that title and gave it to the second half of the book. <laughs> but when I was looking at that grief poem, I realized how much it articulated things about my sister and I. And um, that image of, you know, some say a thick black line drawn taut against the curvature and etching into cut open round bowl, a God's home meridian beneath the roots of a fallen tree. See, that became so much about um, heroin to me, shooting up heroin, the thick black line around the arm, Mm. the sort of, you know, the space of the elbow as the bowl. And I hadn't realized that about that poem before. So that one entered and began because I stole the title from it. It entered into the sister in section. And because I stole the title of it, I thought, I wonder if actually this nest of mammals piece speaks back to sister. Mm. What I started noticing was like, you know, sister urn, the sister becomes the mammals. Um, the mammals are all of those things you name, like the different reference points, um, the different people that enter into the second half of the book. And then the urn became a nest. They're a similar kind of container or shape. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting kind of like architectural conversation that happened across the two sections. But then there's so much grief in both. And one of the ways in which I see that grief, that kind of glo- global grief, impact um, the story of my sister, you know, was thinking through, my sister was very impacted by um, access to various resources because she was female, because she was an immigrant, um, because she was poor, you know, so I was thinking a lot about laws around immigration, immigration rights, uh, thinking about, you know, literally about her going to the doctor and the doctor, um, just prescribing her again and again this Xanax prescription. For a long time, she was off of heroin, but in place of heroin, she was taking an entire bottle of Xanax uh, in a single week Mm. instead of in a month. And so when you would see her, it was as if she was on heroin. She was so like numbed out and just like could barely like move or walk or say anything. And then the rest of the month, the remaining three weeks, she was in withdrawal. So she'd be having seizures, like foaming at the mouth in terrible pain and just like screaming. And it was just this sort of volatile, wild animal in pain. So I think some of that enters into the kind of a relationship that I was thinking about in the second section that isn't as articulated by the first section or even directly in the second but is sort of the emotional part of the emotional line that connects those two sections in the book yeah uh addiction is a bitch yes <laughs> i mean that's an understatement but you mentioned grief how do you define grief or where do you think it lives well i think a lot of the grief in the book is um i don't want to think about it as like as just a grieving well it is it's a grieving for my sister but it's also a grieving of my sister like it's articulating a lot of her own grief I think which has made maybe manifest through addiction I guess it's sort of like a narrative grief in a way you know if I go back to that Andrea Hem poem like thinking about the ways in which 
I feel like there were so many opportunities that could have been presented as resources for her to be able to shift her narrative. But the way that things happened, you know, two or three or four things collide and it just begins to crush a person. And when I say narratively, I guess I just mean like in terms of like the story of your life. And so seeing her sort of drown in that or be suffocated by that, I, I don't think of it as, you know, a flaw in her or like an inability in her. But I grieve, and so I grieve for the fact that she had this kind of light and presence and um, potential that was crushed. And I think she was constantly grieving for that as well. But it was grieving for the way that that was getting continuously buried. Yeah. That's how I'm thinking about it. I mean, it's sort of, it's kind of trying to be articulated through many different layers also sort of how we grieve in a global way for death of the planet. And I mean, right now, I feel like that nest of mammals, I mean, we're really, we're really steeped in the grief yeah. that that was just sort of gesturing toward in a way. Or like- I spoke with Summer last weekend, Summer Browning. I was like, yesterday, I think I almost cried. I don't cry easily. And I've been telling my therapist for a while now, like, I wish I could cry i wish i could just cry lo and behold (laughs) yesterday i mean i had a little bit of a emotional day but i feel like you know nighttime came and i was like unable to stop sobbing and i think it was you know maybe 10 percent about breaking up with someone and 90 percent of like just finally letting some of that global grief american grief like out yeah, I think grief too, you know, they talk about the stages of grief and there's there's a lot of anger and grief too, or a lot of, you know, anger can sort of be a very negative or defend or a destructive kind of emotional response potentially, but I think it also can act as a kind of refusal. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a lot of what nests of mammals is getting at or and also what I'm what I'm kind of feeling now, like refusing to go into like this sort of main refusal to maintain this kind of capitalist mentality that's about what you get from other people hoarding things. And I don't know exactly what I'm trying to articulate, I guess, but no, have you read, have you read Ann Boyer's handbook of disappointed fate? I haven't read that one. You need to read that like immediately. So my friend sent me this text today that was a a photo she took when she was out for a walk with her dog. It says it's this billboard that or like a folding thing in front of a shop. It says happiness is found in a shopping bag. (laughs) And I've been sort of thinking about that today. You know, so that's that's an example of like not refusing to participate in this narrative of capitalism that tells us that our happiness is found in a shopping bag. It's like, I'm actually noticing the ways in which it is not found in a shopping bag and the ways in which I'm thinking about what's essential and what isn't essential and like how I repurpose the things that I already have in my house versus trying to buy more things, you know, and and allowing those narratives to finally like die off because we have an opportunity to do that. I feel angry about people trying to perpetuate those narratives. And so I think my anger 
primarily finds like positive manifest manifestation and just refusing to participate in those narratives or that's refusing to like believe in them. Yeah. A few weeks ago, I live uh, in Capitol Hill and like 10th and Lincoln. And a few weeks ago, the anti quarantine pro Trump pro small business vehicle parade Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, took over my neighborhood for about three hours. Um, And I went outside and watched and yelled things and asked questions. But by the time I came back inside, I was so overwhelmed with anger. Like you talk about anger. I understand some of them, you know, rely on their small business, but a lot of what was going on out there was like freedom. (laughs) Like this is the land of the free. You can't keep us from buying things. You can't keep us from going. That's unconstitutional. I was going to ask you too, if you were ever angry at your sister talking about anger as a part of grief i know how you kind of you don't see addiction as you know something that the addict is doing to other people but were you ever angry i think i experienced that more i'm sure i probably was at times privately you know i tried to never express that anger or like feelings maybe of disappointment directly to my sister i tried to sort of reconcile those or shift those on my own because she wrote to me a number of times in a kind of self-deprecating way like apologizing or saying that she felt like she was such a disappointment or failure and that kind of thing so I never would want to like reinforce that for her. So I think I experienced that more directly as as grief, like, you know, grieving for the lost relationship or just a different relationship that we could have had, you know, um, because I did at various times in our lives, there were there were times when I felt like um, I had to create a lot of distance between the two of us for my own survival. Yeah. And so there were times where I just, I've done that with not just my sister, but, near, you know, many people in my family, almost my whole right. family, where I've sort of just uprooted myself and gone, gone out on my own and not kept in contact for long periods of time. The last probably 10 years, actually, before she passed away, I was mainly in contact with her mother. That's a whole other kind of conversation, what what, what the problematic qualities of that are, but um, for her and for me, but um, for my sister, I mean, and for me, I would talk, I got closer to my, to my stepmother. I actually realized how close we had gotten after my sister passed away because I realized like, oh, fuck, like now this dynamic that she had with her daughter is sort of shifting to me and I don't want anything to do with that, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I kept in touch with her to sort of, mainly to ask about my sister and to sort of like, hear what was going on with her but it became more difficult to talk with my sister directly yeah we did sometimes but you know not it it was always a I don't know what adjective to use but (laughs) difficult (laughs) difficult yeah difficult not between us so much but difficult just um because a lot of sort of like delusion or that's um, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's almost like going back to the beginning where there wasn't a language between you two. Yeah. The silent. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, I do want to say it's incredibly loving and 
insightful of you not to contribute to her shame. I know as a recovering addict, that's a monster. So damn, it's a lot. So I wanted to note one thing as I was reading that Andrea Hem poem, uh -huh. there's a line in there that has a whole sort of thing behind it that no one knows unless I tell them. If you put two Andreas in a room together, they will speak from the shock of static. So, I mean, I think um, if you don't know precisely what that means, it tells you that we're speaking from this sort of shock and static of our childhood. But when we first met each other, like the very day that we met, when I opened the door to my room and she was there, I was so angry at my dad. But when I saw this other like person the same age as me, we just start we just sort of started to play together and I I had to let go of that anger. Since we couldn't say anything to each other, we started kind of scooting our feet on the carpet and to, and gathering up electricity and then we would zap each other with the electricity. <laughs> and when we we zapped and this huge bolt of electricity connected our two pinkies and we sort of looked at each other. And I and we both say now like that's when we knew we were sisters. Yeah. So I feel like we both like had that thought, um, even though we didn't articulate it at the time. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, thank you so much for going into this space with me. What's next for you? I know you had a collection that was supposed to come out, and then COVID ruined that. Yeah, that one. I mean, it actually gave me some time to feel less. Uh, rushed with that manuscript because that one came about with the um, letter machine the press that I two of my books are on yeah. they asked if I wanted to write a third book and then um, have them all come out in a single collection I said yes but they they basically asked have you been working on anything and I lied and said yes I have a new manuscript so um it's it's better that that's delayed or maybe not going to happen because now I can sort of linger in this new manuscript a bit longer and let it like develop. I've been actually working on a collection of lyric essays. I wrote a lot of essays when I did my PhD at the University of Denver. So I have some, you know, a handful of more kind of academic poetic essays. And then I have a few lyric essays, and I'm working on more lyric essays to round off the essay collection. Nice. Well, I can't wait. I'm glad you got more time then. That's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was wonderful and I'm sure difficult. Uh, so I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah.